Good morning, good morning. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. If you grabbed the blue Bible from one of the bookshelves, that's page 887. And if you did grab one of those and you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible. That is our gift to you. Looking at John 2, starting with verse 23, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, picking up where we left off. <clears throat> John 2, starting with verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Last week we saw that in the moment, in the eyes of those who were there, Jesus lost the argument of whether or not he had the authority to cleanse the temple. You weren't here last Sunday, or if you've missed any sermon as we've been going through the Gospel of John, you can find those on the website. I'd encourage you to do that, to be able to fill in the gaps. But Jesus lost. Everyone knew it. The Jewish leaders rejected his answer. The crowd witnessed it. But what's maybe more, verse 22 told us that his disciples didn't believe him either, not until after the resurrection. And then what's fascinating is that we read in verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so talking about same location, same time frame as the temple cleansing account, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So even though Jesus lost the argument, many folks still believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. You see, Jesus was He's just no ordinary guy. And regardless of what happens, people still follow him. But, and this is important for us as the reader to note, verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, that is, those who believed and followed him. And why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. And this gives us insight into the encounters that Jesus will have throughout the course of the gospel with the the Samaritan woman, the Gentile official, the the, the man at the pool of Bethesda, and and more to include the conversation that we're gonna get to see this morning in John chapter three. Please follow along with me as I read our main text this morning, John three, one through 15. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, our count this morning is a conversation between the Messiah and an image bearer that he created. It's a, it's a fascinating encounter that we get to look in on, and it's a beautiful piece of literature as well. And one of the things that we get to see in this conversation between these two rabbis is grace from the Messiah through his patience as he engages with this, frankly, skeptic. And, and what's really sweet is that because this text is for us too, we also, as we engage and listen in on this conversation, will experience grace from the Messiah as well. If you call yourself a skeptic, thanks for being here. And, and I invite you and encourage you to listen in on this conversation. If you call yourself a believer, this, this text is for you too as well. We're going to experience grace from the Messiah as we listen in on this conversation. And what we're gonna to come to see in this conversation is the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit by means of Christ's death on the cross received by faith in Christ. The new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit by means of Christ's death on the cross received by faith in Christ. And we're gonna look at our text, two parts, verses one through eight, and then verses nine through 15, and we're gonna see this, this main point of the text be unfolded as we work through it. Well, follow along with me again as I reread verses one through eight. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do this, these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And the point of these verses is the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. The new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We're told in verse one that Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. And the Pharisees were a Jewish religious party that kept strict adherence to the ritual of the law and to the tradition of the elders as supplementing or amending biblical law. And they're also seen as the adversaries of Jesus. As a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest ruling authority a Jew could have. You see, John is introducing us to an educated man, an aristocrat. Nicodemus is no fool. He has seen Jesus' signs and he's, he's intrigued. 
And he's interested to get to know more about this God-sent teacher. And so verse two, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now John tells us that Nicodemus came to him by night. And depending on the context, John uses night to clue us into details about the setting and or a moral and spiritual state. And in regards to this, theologian D.A. Carson eloquently says, doubtless, Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. So John isn't merely giving us the setting to the conversation, but he's also giving us insight into the spiritual condition of Nicodemus's heart. You see, Nicodemus didn't come to Jesus and see him as the Messiah. He's darkened to that reality. No, no, John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus thinking of him as a rabbi, a teacher sent from God based on the signs he had performed. And Jesus knew this about Nicodemus' heart. What's more, Jesus knew that merely seeing him as a teacher, even a God-sent teacher, would not save Nicodemus. What Nicodemus needed most, what we need most, is a, is a fundamental heart change that will see Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. So knowing what Nicodemus really needed, verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, in essence, Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you think you see something about me, but you are blind as a bat and can't see that God's Messiah is standing right in front of you. Nicodemus, unless you are reborn from above, and that's what born again is getting at, Nicodemus, unless you are reborn from above, you do not have the ability, cannot speak to the lack of ability, you do not have the ability to see God's saving reign and sovereign rule. That's what kingdom of God is getting at. Now the function of the adverb again can be taken as referring to time or place, which is why when I was giving a sense of what Jesus meant, I said reborn from above. However, the dual meaning explains Nicodemus' response to Jesus' in verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus' response is one of skepticism. It may even be a hint of mockery that Jesus would even suggest that someone could go back in time and experience a fleshly birth on earth. Again, are you kidding me? Well, Jesus, so, so patient responds again, verse five. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this really is a restatement of what he said in verse three. And the significant change between verse three and verse five is the elaboration on the phrase born again to now born of water and the spirit. 
This certainly is an interesting phrase, and to understand what Jesus might have meant by this, it, it helps to remember that Jesus was talking to a very educated man when it came to the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says that you must be born of water and of the Spirit, Nicodemus would have likely have understood Jesus to have been alluding to an Old Testament prophecy like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, or Isaiah 44, 3. Here's Ezekiel's prophecy. You can follow along with me on the screen. I, the Lord God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now the water signifies cleansing from impurity. And this is important because when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it always refers to renewal or cleansing, especially when it's found in conjunction with the spirit. The, the new spirit in verse 26 depicts the transformation of the heart that will enable people to follow God fully. All of this, all of this is a supernatural work of God from above. This is why we can say that the new birth that Jesus is talking about is one that comes from above. And Jesus is emphatic about this when he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's abundantly clear that Jesus is not talking about another natural, earthly birth, because he so bluntly says that humans can only produce humans. And then he says that only the spirit can produce spirit. In other words, the flesh cannot produce the spirit. Human life cannot produce spiritual life. Only the Holy Spirit can produce spiritual life. Period. You might recall John 1.13 where we read that believers in Christ were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Later in John 6.63, Jesus will say, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. With Nicodemus clearly astonished by all of this, Jesus says in verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen, Jesus doesn't prescribe some plan for spiritual reformation, nor does Jesus give some new religious precepts to follow. No, Jesus says, you must be born again. John Calvin says, by the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence, it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. We need a complete spiritual overhaul of our hearts. And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can do that work. Jesus was upending Nicodemus' whole world. 
Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sadducees. And you best believe that he thought that he was going to see and enter the kingdom of God. Oh, few could compare themselves to his religious devotion. Few could compare themselves to his strict adherence to keeping the law. Few could compare themselves to his moral uprightness. But Jesus tells Nicodemus that despite all your amazing Pharisaic study and discipline and law keeping and morality, you do not have the ability to see and enter the kingdom of God unless you're reborn from above. You see, Jesus tells them that all of those things are external. Oh, but Nicodemus, what you need is an internal change of the heart. Nicodemus must experience the new birth if he's to see and enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him that the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And he illustrates this in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As he often does, Jesus uses nature to illustrate a spiritual reality. Here, the blowing of the wind and what we can know and observe about the wind's blowing is analogous to what we know and observe about everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the strength of the analogy lies in the dual meaning of the Greek word pneuma. Pneuma can mean wind, breath, or spirit, and here in this verse, Jesus uses two of those. Sounds like this. The pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. The, the, the base commonalities between the wind blowing and the spirit bringing about the new birth is that they're both mysterious and they're both unseen. They're, they're both mysterious and they're both unseen. And as we think about the wind blowing in nature, it, it cannot be controlled by some sort of external force. Right? It, it's, it sovereignly and independently blows. And, and we can't see the wind itself. What we see is the evidence of it blowing in things like the, the leaves rustling or the, the pressure of it blowing against our back. It is mysterious and unseen. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about the new birth is at one and the same time a part of the believer's experience and yet totally beyond us and totally outside of what we can know and do. The Spirit's new birth is both an objective reality and a subjective experience for those who are born of the Spirit. The new birth is an objective reality that, that truly happens when the Holy Spirit brings it about, but we cannot fully explain or fully comprehend it. But it happens. It's a thing. It's objective. And the new birth is also a subjective experience because we can see the evidences of the Spirit's new life 
of the Spirit's new birth in a person's life. We, we experience those subjectively. The new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there's, there's probably many ways that we could apply and respond to a passage like this when we hear truths like this. Let me, let me offer you two. Let me offer you two. Encouragement and humble worship. Encouragement and humble worship. Encouragement. Just like the rustling of the leaves, we can see the evidences of the Spirit's new birth in things like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest being produced in a person's life. These things are fruits of the Spirit. Not, not a fruit of you or me. They're a fruit of the Spirit. And so when we see them in a person's life in a way that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord, they, they serve as evidences of a previous work of the Spirit and bringing about the new birth and evidence of the ongoing work of the Spirit. You, you see, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see evidence of the, of the Spirit's work in our lives, we should be encouraged. And, and when we see evidences of the Spirit's work and, and those born again around us, we, we should encourage. This is the eternal encouragement. This is not temporary encouragement like, you look really nice today. But the eternal encouragement of, hey, hey, I want to encourage you with the evidence of the Spirit's activity in you. Oh, I'm very encouraged by the patience that I see in you. And I want to encourage you that that is a fruit of the Spirit and not a fruit of you. And it gives evidence of him having given you the new birth and evidence that he's still at work in you. That's rich, eternal encouragement. You, you, you see, for, for those who have been born again, the evidences of the Spirit's new birth serve as encouragement and confirmation of the Spirit's past and ongoing work. Second, humble worship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have, we have been born again by a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And this should bring about humble worship. There, there is zero room for pride in the new birth, as it is only and completely a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We, we had nothing to do with it. And, and this truth should cause us to humbly worship God for doing a miraculous work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Oh, our response should be great and overwhelming humility and worship to God in thanksgiving for what he has done. The call in verses one through eight is that we must be born again. And Jesus reveals to us that the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the conversation doesn't end there. Follow along with me as I reread verses 9 through 15. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this brings us to our second point. The new birth is by means of Christ's death on a cross received by faith in Christ. The new birth is by means of Christ's death on a cross received by faith in Christ. Nicodemus's follow-up question in verse nine should be seen more like, how can this happen? With this question, Nicodemus would seem to still be skeptical to the idea of being born again from above. But what we see from here on out is silence from Nicodemus, and then Jesus' answer to his question of how does the new birth happen? Starting with verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? Stop. Jesus is not exasperated, but rather he's giving Nicodemus the the teacher of Israel a sharp rebuke because he should have understood these things. He should have understood these things from his Old Testament. All the way back, all the way back in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, the fifth book of the Torah, we read, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. If Nicodemus is to love God with his whole heart, with all of his soul, so that he may truly live, he must have God give him a new heart. But Jesus rebukes him. And yet, you do not understand these things. Jesus goes on to set up his answer to Nicodemus' question. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Let's Let's stop there. The the we know from Jesus in verse 11 is maybe a slight tease, but it's certainly a perfect counter to Nicodemus' earlier, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Jesus may be a little tongue-in-cheek, but what he's really doing is giving force to his claim. Jesus, John the Baptist, and the prophets that came before him speak to what they know and bear witness to what they've seen. And we've already seen that John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus in chapter one, verse 32, and verse 34. But later in chapter five, in the midst of having his authority challenged yet again, Jesus calls on multiple witnesses to substantiate his authority and identity. That of God the Father, John the Baptist, the worst that his father had given him, scripture itself, and, and even Moses. And Jesus, along with all the prophets, is bearing witness to his messianic identity and authority. And what we cannot miss is Jesus' indictment of Nicodemus at the end of verse 11, but you do not receive our testimony. D.A. Carson provides rich insight when he says, Nicodemus' failure was not a failure of intellect, but a failure to believe Jesus' witness. You people do not receive our testimony. The failure to believe was more reprehensible than the failure to understand since it betrayed a fundamental, inadequate appreciation of who Jesus is. This is not the introduction to unbelief in John's gospel. Back in 
1.11, we read, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Sadly, though, at this point, Nicodemus starts to serve as a representative for all those who are rejecting God's Messiah, as the you at the end of 12 is plural. Unbelief. Unbelief is a core expression of man's rebellion against God and God's Messiah. Unbelief is a core expression of man's rebellion against God and God's Messiah. Nicodemus' unbelief, his lack of spiritual eyes to see that God's Messiah is standing right before him is due to not being reborn from above. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. Almost as a parenthetical in the midst of substantiating that he's bearing witness to what he authoritatively knows and has seen, Jesus says in verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And this is an argument from lesser to greater. Earthly things seems to be referring to the elementary teaching of the necessity of the new birth. And heavenly things would seem to be then indicating the mysterious nature behind the Spirit's sovereign work in bringing about the new birth. And and so Jesus is saying, "If, if you don't believe me about the one, how can you believe me about the other? Well, Jesus does have authority to speak about heavenly things. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You see, Jesus can speak authoritatively on what he's already spoken about and most certainly on heavenly things because he's the only one who's here on earth that's from heaven. Heaven is his home. Jesus insists that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way as to return to talk about earthly things. And we finally come to the crux of Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' question, how does the new birth happen? In verses 14 through 15, Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Previously, Jesus explains the new birth in terms of water and spirit, and hearkening back to a prophetic vision like Ezekiel's. But here in verse 14, Jesus, Jesus employs a, a narrative passage, the, the well-known passage, or at least it certainly would have been to a, a well-studied man like Nicodemus. But he, he, he employs the narrative passage of the bronze serpent in the desert. It's a short account, and I think it'd be beneficial if we read it together to better understand Jesus' answer. So follow along the screen with me. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, the Israelites set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on their way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. 
pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Do we, do we see what's going on here? The, the, the people of God are sinfully rebelling by complaining to God and God's chosen mediator, Moses, about their lot in life. One commentator says, the venom of the people's anger led them to blaspheme the Lord, to reject his servant, and to hold the bread of heaven with contempt. So in his righteous anger, the, the, the Lord ravages his rebellious people with poisonous snakes. Why? To grab these rebels' attention so that they might see their sinfulness and the offense of their rebellious responses against holy God and his chosen mediator. God's attended effect was brought about. The people came to Moses, confessed their sin, and asked Moses to intercede on their behalf, asking God to take away the serpents. In his grace and mercy, God does not take away the serpents, but he provides a divine provision for healing. God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent to a pole and, and lift it up so that Whenever one was bitten, they could look at the snake and live. These folks were dying, but by God's provision, new life was graciously granted. And to experience new life, they were told to look and live. Listen, Moses didn't save them. He was simply the mediator whom God used to bring about his gracious salvation. The, the serpent didn't save them. The serpent was just the means by which God saved them. In fact, we know that the serpent was somehow preserved and wrongly worshipped as King Hezekiah would later break it into pieces. And, and finally, their looking, their faith didn't save them either. The source of their salvation was not in their faith, but the God in whom their faith was placed. No, it was God and his saving grace alone that saved them and gave them new life. Similarly, Jesus says that just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that whoever would look would live, he says so, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up on his pole the cross, so that whoever looks on him may live. In contrast, though, as much as God the Father is entirely behind the work of Christ on the cross, Jesus is also entirely behind the work as well. You see, Jesus is the better and greater mediator between God and man. He's the God-man. Also in contrast, Moses' mediation was done with something external from his being, but the work of Christ necessarily involved his own body and blood. Finally, in contrast, Moses' lifting up the staff was, was temporary, but the 
cross of Christ, it, it stands forever, as it were, casting a, a shadow over all of redemptive history. The purpose of Christ being lifted up on the cross is found in verse 15. So that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The command to look to the uplifted serpent was a gracious foreshadowing of looking to Christ for our salvation. The, the purpose of Jesus being lifted high upon the cross was to be the object of faith so that by looking to him with the eyes of faith, not only would the venomous sting of death be taken away, but in its place, new life in him, eternal life, would be brought about. John Piper, in his wonderful book, Finally Alive, writes, the Gospel of John makes this clear. Jesus himself is the life that the Holy Spirit gives. Or, or we could say, the spiritual life that he gives, he only gives in connection with Jesus. Union with Jesus is where we experience supernatural spiritual life. From our side, the way we experience it experience this is that faith in Jesus is awakened in our hearts. Spiritual life and faith in Jesus come into being together. The new life makes the faith possible. And since spiritual life always awakens faith and expresses itself in faith, there is no life without faith in Jesus. Therefore, we should never separate the new birth from faith in Jesus. From God's side, we are united to Christ and the new birth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. From our side, we experience this union by faith in Jesus. Faith is the way we experience being born of God. Being born of God always brings faith with it. The life given in the new birth is the life of faith. The two are never separate. How must we be born again? How do we receive eternal life? We, we look to Jesus. We must be born again. We, we must be remade in our hearts by the Spirit's sovereign work, and there's nothing we can do to force the Spirit's hand. And, and so the question is, Nicodemus's question is, how does the new birth happen? The answer that Jesus gives is simply beautiful. It's what the Israelites were called to do in the wilderness if they wanted to be saved from the venom of the serpents and receive new life. They, they had to look to God's appointed means of deliverance, the snake lifted high upon a pole. And Jesus is answered in Nicodemus and his answer to us too is the same what must we do in order to be saved from our sins, in order to be born again, in order to receive eternal life? We must look to God's appointed means of deliverance. Jesus Christ lifted high upon a cross and exalted. Oh, it's not our faith that saves us. Don't look to your look. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The new birth is by means of Christ's death on the cross received by faith in Christ. 
In the end, I, I think the, the text's main point is, is clear. The, the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. By means of Christ's death on a cross, received by faith in Christ. I would be remiss if I didn't conclude this sermon the same way that Jesus did in his engagement with Nicodemus, a skeptic. If you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, look to Jesus and be saved. Like Nicodemus learned, we too, all of us, are to understand that no amount of religious devotion will suffice. No amount of morality will suffice. No amount of the good outweighing the bad will suffice. Apart from simple faith in Christ, all of us are due God's just wrath for our sins. What we've been talking about is the gospel. The gospel is the, the good news that God provided a divine remedy for our sin on the cross of Christ. You see, the bad news is that our sin demands the punishment of God's just wrath in hell for all eternity. But the good news is that just like the Israelites in the desert, but even better, God has provided a divine remedy for the venom that is our sin. Oh, God put forth Christ on the cross and everyone who looks to him will be saved and receive new life. Once you look to Jesus, look to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for a text like this. There, there are there are texts that we read in Holy Scripture that if they were not there, we would not know the truths that they contain. And this is one of them. What amazing truths that we get to read from this text this morning. Father, you, in eternity past, made a plan to seek and save a people for yourself and Part of that plan is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit bringing about the, the new birth in your children's lives. And we give you thanks and praise. All worship belongs to you. Father, we know that you have lifted Christ high up on the cross and he is exalted gloriously and there for everyone to who would believe in him, would receive this new life. And I pray, Lord, today, would you do a mighty work in people's lives to either be encouraged and to worship, or, Father, to, to come to faith and look to Jesus. And give us help to continue to think and meditate on this passage and to apply it deeply to our hearts and our minds. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.